Hello and welcome back to the Annick Castle podcast. I'm Deborah Baycroft. And I'm Daniel Watkins. And today's episode is all about the times Annick Castle has appeared on television. Way back on episode three of the podcast, we talked about Annick Castle on the big screen, but now it's TV's turn. Just like with movies, the castle has featured for decades in dramas, comedies, documentaries and more. Daniel spoke to TV critic and reviewer and host of the pilot TV podcast, James Dyer, about a few of Annick Castle's most famous TV appearances. That includes Downton Abbey, which filmed two Christmas specials here, the first series of Blackadder, cult classic shows like Robin of Sherwood and more. Please enjoy. It's very exciting to be able to welcome James Dyer, the digital editor-in-chief of Empire and the host of the Pilot TV podcast to the Annick Castle podcast. Thank you very much for joining us on our show. How are you? I am good. Thank you very much for inviting me onto a Castle podcast, which is a first for me. So that's nice. Yeah, well, it's our first podcast about TV, so it's a first both ways. It's nice. (laughs) I'd like to start by talking about your interest in TV. You talk about television professionally and have done for a number of years now. But what were the big shows that hooked you into that and helped you become a professional TV person? Do you know what? That's a question that genuinely I have never been asked before in all of our various pilot TV sort of like post bags. Because I get asked like about film stuff a lot and what mm. films and, you know, formative films, films that made you, that kind of stuff. But I don't think anyone's ever asked that. Like, what were the TV shows that first got me obsessed with TV? It's quite hard to pin down because I would say the TV I grew up watching was maybe not the formative TV for me. So films were something that were my passion, I think, as a teenager. I I always enjoyed TV, but the kind of stuff I grew up watching, which would have been, you know, Blackadder, Red Dwarf, Faulty Towers, things like that. You know, I had those those things that shaped my sense of humor, that shaped my comedy. But from a kind of dramatic point of view, it was just whatever was on because – when I was a kid, you watched, there wasn't a lot. There wasn't, you know, we had three channels. I remember before Channel 4 launched, you know, and you just watched what was on and that was your lot and you just got on with it. And if it was rubbish, that's fine. It passed the time. So I don't think any of that really sees me. I think the first shows that properly ignited passion in me were probably Star Trek and that generation, I would mm-hmm. say. And then after that, things like Buffy and the X-Files. And then once you start sort of like coming towards 2000, when you're heading towards peak TV, it's Sopranos, it's West Wing, then it's The Wire, then it's all of the stuff that you would imagine. Because TV has progressively got better and better and better. It's got to the point now where, you know, it used to be such the poor cousin to film. And now, in so many ways, it eclipses film. Because long-form storytelling, for me, is more engaging. It's a more sort of long-term form of understanding of sort of an environment and characters. So I love that kind of stuff. You know, there's so much money, there's so much talent in it these days. And there's a sophistication to it that I think the streaming age has also brought as well. So that's a very long-winded answer to a very simple question. But if I had to pick, so if I were to go back to exactly what you first said and say, if I were to pick the first TV show that I genuinely loved, that would probably be Faulty Towers and Red Dwarf, because I used to watch them going to sleep. I literally would put them on every night as I went to sleep and just watch them as I slept. So that was it. And you mentioned Blackadder as well Mm. there. And that is one of the most famous TV appearances here at Annick Castle. We've been used for several decades as a TV location, but Blackadder has endured for 40 years. Our visitors in 2022, 2023 recognise the castle from Blackadder. Why do you think it has lasted in people's minds for so long? Well, funnily enough, now I'm going to go out on a limb and say 
you only appear in the first season of Blackadder, or series, I should say. That is true. Which, of course, is the one series no one talks about or watches, unfortunately. Yeah, we've got a lot of affection for it. We <laughs> appear in the opening credits as the Blackadder title turns up. Yeah. Lord Percy does appear in feature series yes. as the resident of the castle. So, yeah, we like series one. Weirdly, like, series one put me off. Like, I did not enjoy series one at all. because, But it's a different show. So series one has an entirely different comedic sensibility to the one subsequent series before they really knew who Edmund Blackadder was. And because he's kind of, he's, he's a slightly wormy, pathetic, whiny kind of figure. It feels like Rowan pinned down a very different character to who he ultimately settled on. And there are still moments in there, you know, which are funny that the elements of that same sense of humor come through at points. Mm-hmm. But it's tonally so different. And I don't really enjoy it. It's not until you get to series two that you get that incredibly sarcastic, you know, wry sense of humor that he became so famous for. And also it got very clever. Like I feel like the satirical elements of it didn't really come in until series two. Two is not the best series of Blackout, but it is my favorite. Four is the best. Three is great as well. Uh, weirdly, I like all of them except one. But but the castle's great. Looks brilliant. Love it. Good. Um, yeah, it's, it's Blackadder on a bigger scale than series two two to four because they are there on location yeah, on location and not on a like you know bbc set in the middle of one of the coldest winters that northumberland had ever had up to that point so uh they did come back for a 25th anniversary reunion and mainly remembered how terrible the weather was the entire time they filmed <laughs> so uh, there was a lot of very good acting that it wasn't as freezing cold as it was in that first series fair but do you think there are benefits to filming television on location as opposed to a studio or a stage or something like that even for a sitcom like Blackadder I feel this is a loaded question because I think you already know where I stand on this (laughs) uh yes there is I understand fully that it's not always practical because it depends very much on what you are shooting and there are cost limitations to what you can do with a location I think when George Lucas did the Phantom Menace and more so Attack of the Clones he opened a door he opened a door to making an entire movie in a green room standing on green boxes and people would not know the difference. And look, it works, but it's not the same. And I think, like, you know, I talk a lot about the Disney Plus output, specifically the Star Wars stuff and the reliance on the LED volume that they use and the LED walls and screens that they use as a stand-in for locations. And I think it can work well and it can work badly. I think the early seasons of The Mandalorian, in fact, I will go on a record to say every season of The Mandalorian has worked very well. I never really noticed that it was on a volume. It didn't distract me. It didn't put me off. And then you look at it in Boba Fett. You look at it even more so in Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it's so abundantly clear that they're on a volume with LED walls and that it's not a great set. There's a, there's one in one of the later episodes of Obi-Wan where Darth Vader's trying to break into the, you know, the, the compound where the Millennium Falcon's there. It looks so bad, so bad for a show that has that kind of budget. And you just it just made me slightly questioned my love for Star Wars, which is a big thing to say, but it really did, until Andor, which is shot entirely on location, you know, as a big two fingers up to the previous ones, it seems. And those locations are glorious and it's gorgeous and it showcases everywhere from like, like I can't remember, it's like, which coastal town I've forgotten that they use for the beach planet, but all of these different places around the UK and they make it look alien, they make it look wonderful. And it seems so much more lavish, so much more lush. So there's a realness to it, even though it's set in the future. Well, it's not actually set in the past because it's Star Wars. But even though it's set in a kind of science fiction environment, 
it works and it works on location. So I'm very much a believer if you can do it on location and you can afford to do it on location and you can find the location, do it on location. And I think some places do, some shows do make sets look very, very good. And I'm not to take away from the, you know, the production designer's craft and they can do really, really good jobs with that. But I think if you can find a lovely location, it does. It adds a layer of realism that I think it's hard to find anywhere else. One TV show that really uses its real locations well is Downton Abbey. It does. Which films famously at Highclere Castle, but filmed here at Annick in 2014 and 2015. I know you're a Downton fan. I am. What is it that makes Downton special? What connects it with people around the world in a way that lots of other similar dramas just don't? You know what? It's hard to say in so many ways because it's a very sort of a very con- sort of conservative, class-based, upstairs-downstairs drama in a way that a number of other ones recently, the one, the Hotel on the Riviera one, which neither the name, which I've forgotten, didn't work for me. Hotel Portofino? Yeah, that's the one, yeah. And then, you know, The Gilded Cage as well didn't really do it for me either. So it's not like I'm particularly attracted to that kind of dramatic dynamic. But there's something about Downton and I can't quite put my finger on it, except to say that it's partly to do with the fact that it starts with the sinking of the Titanic. So they've got you immediately. You're like, whoa, they've lost family members on the Titanic. There's all the stuff about the air. Then there's the murder mystery and Lady Mary's virtue. So you get swept up in so much melodrama so quickly. And the characters were just very vivid. Even even ones that were short-lived, like Rose Leslie, as, the, as I think it was Gwen, who you know wanted to go off and become a writer. You know, She was learning to type and stuff. You, know, you get very sucked into it. And the dynamics between the upstairs people and, and the fact that Lady Mary, who's just a bit unpleasant to everyone, and poor Lady Edith, who's kind of like this hangdog you know, sister who nothing ever goes her way. Lady Sybil, who ends up dallying with the chauffeur. Lord Grantham and his wife. And then, of course, the Dowager Countess, because Maggie Smith is amazing. Mm-hmm. All of them together made a really interesting sort of tapestry of characters with all these different textures and their interactions were spiky. The dialogue was just spot on, especially Maggie Smith's lines, which were all brilliant. And then you bring in cousin Matthew and his mother and there's a slight sort of like outsider element there. And bear in mind, this is just talking about the upstairs people. And then of course you have the whole whole other strata, which is what's going on down below. Yeah. Mr. Carson, all the sort of like Daisy in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore, and then you have Bates comes in and they don't like him, and Thomas doesn't like him and massively resents him. You've got the two evil people downstairs. It's just, it's so perfectly pitched that against my better judgment, I just inhaled the entire show. I will say the final season, I kind of watched while doing other things. Like I felt like some of the guilt had come off the lily by that point. I was a little bit like, okay, this has gone on a while. But I've really enjoyed, certainly the most recent film, I really enjoyed. Uh, Downton Abbey, A New Era. I thought that was great. So yeah, it, it is great. What I want to ask you though is, where does the castle appear in Downton Abbey? Because I'm trying to, I'm trying to pin it down in my head. Well, it's towards the end, series five and series six. Mm-hmm. It's known as Brancaster Castle. And it comes into it when they rent it for a shooting party led by Lord Cinderby, Lady Rose's father-in-law, played by Uh, James Faulkner, a.k.a. Lord Tarly from Game of Thrones. I remember. And lots of drama happens. Branson gets in some trouble. Barrow gets in some trouble. Lady Rose saves everybody from trouble. And Lady Edith meets and falls in love with the soon-to-be Marquess of Hexham. And then becomes the Marchioness of Hexham. Yes, indeed. And comes to live here at Brancaster. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, so you find it's, it's, actually, it's actually Lady Edith. So, yeah, so. in 
Downton chronology, we are Lady Edith's wow. forever home now. Amazing. So we are the happy ending that she got after <laughs> quite a lot of unhappy times. Yeah, she didn't have the best time. She didn't know. How, how do you feel about Edith as a character? Oh, was she I one of the more compelling Edith. ones? Yeah, no, I thought she was lovely because you always feel for her. Because also she didn't have many sort of sharp edges. She was just quite decent and pleasant all the way through. Whereas Mary was a bit marmite. Like she could be sympathetic and she went through some stuff, but she was also awful to most people. Mm-hmm. And she was a lot like the Dowager Countess, which was always said, like she very much was Violet and would grow in to become the new Dowager Countess. So yeah, I I, I know I thought Edith was definitely the more sympathetic of them. And do you prefer the upstairs stories or the downstairs stories? Oh, that's actually really difficult. I don't know that I could separate them easily. I think it's the interplay between the two that actually makes it so fascinating. I think I liked the downstairs characters more, but I enjoyed the upstairs storylines more because they had a certain pomp and grandeur to them that I really liked. And actually in the most recent film, when you get the kind of switcheroo where the lords are serving the servants, I thought that was a really lovely capstone to the series because it's just it was, a, it was a lovely inversion of it. And there was something about that that just made me feel all hot and warm. Not hot and fluffy. Warm and fuzzy. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I enjoyed that. It was great. Have you got any particular favourites who you followed all the way through and wanted to see end up happy like Edith does here at Brancaster? Oh, well, that's, Edith was definitely the one. I wanted Edith to be happy. I wanted Branston to be happy, actually. I kind of, I rooted for him because he, you know, I mean, he could be insufferable at times, but I, you know, I, I wanted things to work out with him. And I always rooted for cousin, for, I, call, I keep calling her cousin Violet. Uh, I always <laughs> rooted for, my, uh, for, for the Dowager Countess, actually, because she is a snob and she's dreadful. What's a weekend? You know, all that sort of stuff. But because her dialogue was so great, like being around her was always a pleasure. And so I think you can't help but warm to people who have like dialogue that good because you just want to hear them speak. And I think that naturally gives an affection towards them. So yeah, I kind of wanted that to work. But also you were invested in Downton as a place, I think. I don't want it to get sold off. I don't want, you know, I want them to be able to replace the roof when they need to. You get to that point where like Lord Grantham, you want to protect the institution of Downton and you don't want it to go anywhere. And Carson was an interesting one to me because he was so resistant to change. He was so locked in that kind of servant's mentality. And you kind of wanted him to be able to adapt just enough that he could be happy with the changing times. So I was happy when and he and, uh, and, <laughs> and oh God, I just, her name's gone out of my head. What's her name? Who we married? Mrs. Hughes. Mrs. Hughes, that. It was when he and Mrs. Hughes together, I was like, oh good, I'm very glad that finally happened. Yes. It didn't help him in France, though. It did not. And he was an absolute delight as the, you know, xenophobic Englishman abroad. It's interesting you talking about Downton as a place feeling almost like one of the characters. Because that tends to happen in shows that are set in big houses or castles or fortresses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we started recording, we mentioned Bebenburg from The Last Kingdom, which is just up the road from Anik. There's fictional TV castles like Gormenghast and the castles in Game of Thrones. What do you think gives a place a sense of character? What does it need to not just be where the thing's set? Mm, That is a difficult one. I think it has to be something, you need a familiarity to it. So first of all, it needs to be thought out and planned out. So I need, I think there needs to be a sense of recognizable geography to the place and settings or parts of it that have kind of 
character moments that stick in your memory, which kind of feel a part of the place they're set. And so the Enterprise D is always one that sticks with me because the Enterprise D, you had such a sense of where everything was in that ship and the different things, whether it be 10 forward, engineering, all the different areas. And it started to feel homely. There was something about it that felt familiar, that felt comforting. And I think Downton has something similar to it as well. You became very familiar with the different distinct areas of the house. And I think it works with castles as well. Winterfell as well. You know, you get a feeling for the courtyard in Winterfell, for the various rooms for the Great Hall. King's Landing, all the various parts of of that place, it has a real sense of place. And I think what helps in Game of Thrones is they made a real effort to delineate between, you know, like, so King's Landing is in, I think that's shot in Malta. You know, obviously Winterfell is very much not. Everything has a distinct flavour. He was very conscious of, though, even though Westeros is one continent, it has distinct climates and geographies and styles. So you never felt like, oh, look, it's another identikit castle like they all felt different mm. yeah which i which i think worked really really well for that you were beyond the wall with the wildlings harren hal feels completely different to winterfell like they all have their own flavor which i think is nice like i i am the first woman i know absolutely nothing about castle how to build a castle what bits of a castle do what i know but i know a castle that i like when i see it and i liked the castles in that show Yes, uh, when they're not being burned down by dragons. Indeed, indeed. Yes, uh, our dragons are very well behaved and have never burned the place down. Good. I want to go back to the 80s again and talk about one of the cult classics that was shot here, which is Robin of Sherwood. <laughs> there are a lot of people, again, 40 years later, who have seen it recently or who grew up with it, who've still got a lot of affection for it. Yeah. I, I know you have watched Robin of Sherwood. Are you one of those people who still has a soft spot in your heart for it. Oh, very much so. I've not watched it in a very, very long time. But I watched it when it first aired, when Michael Prade was first playing Robin. And I I remember watching that with friends. Nazir was always my favourite character. When we used to do like role play with my friends, I was Nazir. I remember, because he had two swords, and I remember holding two pieces of Scalextric track. <laughs> and they, they, those, were my, those were my Nazir swords. But I watched that at the time, but I revisited it in my teenage years, because I seem to recall on Sky One, they started playing it at one o'clock on a Sunday. Sky One play Robin of Sherwood. And so I would be out on a Saturday night and then I would wake up just in time for Robin of Sherwood as a teenager. And I would just, I think I mainlined the entire thing. But it's really bleak when you look back. I remember the, you know, all the swords when he's like the Seven Swords of Wayland, the, like the Hounds of Fenris. It like, had some real dark stuff in there with Richard O'Brien as, was it Gulnar, I think his name is. Like it's got some some pretty heavy hitting storylines. And I seem to recall when it still blows my mind that Ray Winston was Will Scarlet. When Michael Prade goes out of it, like that episode is really bleak, like really bleak. And you think, well, how is this going to continue? And I did jar on it when Jason Connery kind of comes in. And I seem to recall like when he actually comes in, he, he cuts in, like they're all in prison. He cuts in to free them. And they're like, it's Robin, it's Robin. But no, he's blonde. He, like, he looks completely different. But yeah, no, it, it's a great show. And it remains one of those, I think, brilliant it's almost like a British fantasy show. I appreciate it's historical fiction. It's not kind of fantasy as such, but it has that fantasy feel to it. And they brought in enough of the supernatural with Hearn the Hunter, I think, to give it a slightly magical flavour. And I think that maybe is what appealed to me so much at that age. Do you think historical stories in shows that have a bit of the fantasy touch or the sci-fi feel to them, they can offer something different from a straightforward historical drama like a Downton well, it depends. So it depends on the audience you ask. Like for me, it makes them more accessible because I need something. Well, I don't need, but I like something 
to kind of kindle my interest. And I think adding some speculative fiction into the historical stuff works for me. For certain other people, like Kay, who also does the Pilot TV podcast with me, that would put her off enormously. But I certainly think in terms of broadening the demographic, certainly if you're looking at a younger audience, giving them historical fiction, I think that's an uphill struggle. I think you whack in like magical hounds and magic swords, and I think then you're moving in the right direction. I think you're far more likely to get some uptake that way. Robin Sherwood's not the only Robin Hood that was made here at Annick Castle. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was made for the cinemas. Yes. But on TV, the castle also features briefly as Nottingham Castle in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Does it now? Yeah, there's an episode where the crew of the Enterprise find themselves in a Robin Hood story. Is that the that's That's not the Q Robin Hood story. This is, that this one. is the episode Cupid. <laughs> Sir, I protest. I am not a merry man. Yes, Worf is excellent. <laughs> you, you remember that episode? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in, in that, the crew are transported to a historical setting by the entity yes. known as Q. For the people who are not Trek fluent, <laughs> could, could you explain what a Q is? Oh, good God. So the Q, Q is John Delancey, who is a member of the Q Continuum, who are kind of a race of immortal, omnipotent alien beings. And he likes to mess around with Captain Picard. In this particular episode, he's trying to get Captain Picard with Vash, who's one of the characters he had an on and off dalliance with. And so he transposes them into a Robin Hood story where she is Marion and he is essentially Robin Hood. And the Enterprise Bridge crew are his merry men. And it is absurd and it is ludicrous and it is lots of fun yeah i always liked the q stories i thought they were they were great it makes it one of those shows where anything could happen yes um, very much so including our castle suddenly turning up where no <laughs> castle has presumably gone before <laughs> yes so as as a final question would you like to see the crew of the next generation enterprise via maybe some q shenanigans meet up with the crawlies of downton abbey somehow oh god that would blow see the thing is things like that it's like when you cross the streams too much i always think nothing good can happen because i know it sounds ridiculous but like there is a limit to my suspension of disbelief do you know what i mean like like uh, you will lose me if you go too far down these kind of weird sort of tangents so actually like because i used to read i didn't like i don't get me wrong, the Alien versus Predator films are not good, but those things thematically work together. You can kind of marry those two things together, I think. But like when you start including, and I've read comics like this, like Alien versus Predator versus Batman, and it's just like, no, come on now. Like, let's not be silly. There are things that work from a sort of texture, from a theme point of view, and things that don't. Do not put them together, otherwise it makes a nonsense of the whole thing. So I think let's maybe avoid having Worf rampaging through Highclere Castle. I think that, I don't think that would end well for anyone. The Dowager Countess would not be impressed. No, she really wouldn't. No, she would not be amused. We are probably coming to a close of our conversation now, but before we go, could you let us know where we can find you if people would like to hear more TV talk from James <laughs> Dyer? If you want to hear more about everything that's on TV in this in this glorious era of peak TV, then the Pilot TV podcast goes out on Mondays on all good podcast platforms. And you can find me on social media at James C. Dyer. Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us on the Annette Castle podcast today, Talking Television. A pleasure. If you'd like to know more about the making of Downton Abbey, Blackadder and many other TV programmes at Annette Castle, you can join an Annette on Location film tour when you visit the castle. Tours run every day during our opening season. If you want to hear about the castle's film appearances, please check out episode three of the podcast, Annick Castle and Film, featuring James's Empire colleague, Helen O'Hara. And if you enjoy this episode of the podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Share it with your friends and let us know that you liked it with a rating or review.
Join us again in two weeks when we'll be looking at another aspect of Annick Castle's history. Until then, I've been Daniel. And I've been Deborah. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.